0: Well, uh, today is the third part of this series called Reason. And if you're new to this series, it's all about finding reasonable faith uh, in the face of doubt. And the inspiration uh, for this entire series is found in one verse of scripture. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And I just wanna read you that verse. And this is what the apostle Peter said. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And as Christians, we believe that it's completely reasonable for people to want reasons for faith. And as Christians, we're not intimidated by people's questions and we should, entertain people's questions. We should invite people's questions. We should encourage people's questions because we ourselves have already asked those questions and we continue to ask those questions and we know the reason why we believe what we believe. And those reasons are reasonable. Those reasons are compelling. Those reasons are the reasons that we have faith and the hope that we do. So it's reasonable for people to want reasons to believe what they want. Think they need to or consider what they may or may not want to believe. Uh, we're not intimidated by that, and that's what this series is all about because people have questions. I've got questions, you've got questions, our kids have questions. Uh, I was having dinner the other night with the boys, and uh, me, Shepard, and Grayson were sitting there. Allison was on call, and I, I had uh, grilled us some steaks really quick. And so we were sitting down, and we had some baked potatoes, we had steak, and we had some asparagus. and. And I asked the boys, I said, you want another little twist of salt? And uh, the boys said, well, sure, yeah. So I'm, I'm grinding the salt on top of their steak and getting ready to sit down and we're gonna eat together and have a good time. And and so I get over there to Grayson and, and, and Grayson stops me as I'm about to put the salt on his steak. And he said, dad, can I ask a question first? And I said, well, sure buddy, uh, what, what, what's your question about? And he said, well, it's a Bible question? And I'm like, Can it not wait until after I put the salt on? He said, no, not really, this is important. And I said, okay, what's the question? He said, you know that whole story about the woman who was turned to a pillar of salt? I said, yes. He said, that's not where this salt comes from, is it? (laughs) And I said, "I." I don't think so. I don't think so. And he said, well, put it on. And, and so, you know, everybody's got questions and, and that's what this series is all about. It's about revisiting the reasons why many of us believe and the reasons why we think other people should believe as well. Now. When it comes to Jesus and his first disciples, his first disciples like James and John and Peter and Andrew and Bartholomew and Simon and the other James and you know, the original 12, when it came to the original disciples of Jesus, they had a front seat to the ministry. Of Jesus, Uh, They got a front row and, and they got to see everything a bit closer and they got to hear everything a bit louder than everybody else. So everything that Jesus did, they got to see it with their eyes and everything that Jesus said, they got to hear it with their ears. They heard all of his sermons and they watched all of his miracles. I mean, it was really quite a phenomenal thing to be one of those original disciples. But even though they saw all of Jesus's miracles with their eyes and they heard all of Jesus's sermons with their ears, the most interesting thing is that they still struggled with their faith. The original 12, getting to see all that they got to see and hear all that they got to hear, they still struggled with their faith. And as you read through the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find them constantly vacillating between faith and doubt. Sometimes they believed, sometimes they were slow to believe, and sometimes it was as if they were struggling to believe at all. And I think that's a really great thing that we can find in common with the disciples because they know what many of us know, which is the excruciating and frustrating tug of war like tension that exists between faith and doubt. Faith and doubt, it's just part of the experience. And sometimes we're leaning towards faith. Sometimes we're leaning towards doubt. Sometimes it's a little bit of both all at the same time. And so the disciples, even though they saw what they saw and heard what they heard, they still struggled. On one particular occasion, uh, they were with Jesus when Jesus miraculously fed thousands of people. Uh, Jesus was able to take seven loaves of bread and a few fish and he blessed it and somehow with some type of unexplainable work of God, it just kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying till thousands of people were fed by just a few loaves and a few fish even to the point afterward that after this miracle was complete, the disciples went and collected over seven basketfuls full of food that was left over. I mean, it was miraculous, it was incredible. They were there, they saw it all, they heard it all. I mean, they were there on the front row. But a short time later on the hills of that miracle, uh, we find that Jesus is in a boat with his disciples and they're headed across the Sea of Galilee And as they're making their way across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, he finds himself a bit entertained because he's listening to his disciples. And the disciples are sitting there in the boat and they're kind of a bit, you know, they're a bit fearful and they're a bit angry with each other because they're concerned about not having enough food with them. Uh, They've only got one loaf of bread and, and somebody has apparently forgot to pack the rest of the provisions. And so they're looking at one you know, loaf of bread. They don't know how long they're gonna be gone. They don't know how far they're gonna be traveling. But in the midst of all of this, they're fearful that they, those 12, did not have enough food to survive. And Jesus is in the boat and he is just entertained by this whole thing. He can't believe what he's hearing and and they've completely forgot about Jesus because they're like, James, did you forget to pack the bread again? No, it wasn't me, it was John. John, were you supposed to pack? I don't know who was supposed to pack the bread, but we don't have enough bread and this is a serious, this could go bad at any moment. And so Jesus is sitting there and he can't believe what he's hearing and what he's seeing. That these guys, their eyes and their ears are so one-dimensional in this moment. All they can think about is what they have and the fear of what they don't have enough of. And Jesus turns to them and he asks them a question. And this is the question that Jesus asked. He said, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? In other words, Jesus is saying, guys, are are you missing what is right in front of you? you? Do you just... Have you totally forgotten about what just happened? Remember those thousands of people, there was not enough food, and all of a sudden with a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish, I fed thousands of people. It was a miracle. Matter of fact, we walked away and you guys were talking about how cool it was, how awesome it was. Oh my gosh, have any of you seen anything like this ever happen before? And they were like, no, I've never seen anything like this happen before. And now... You're so blind and so deaf to what is right in front of you. You're afraid that you don't have enough bread. And so Jesus is basically saying to them, don't be so busy and don't be so close-minded and don't be so distracted and don't be so arrogant or so afraid that you can't see what can be seen and that you can't hear what can be heard and that you can't acknowledge what is right in front of your face. Because if you can't see what can be seen, And if you can't hear what can be heard, you are missing part of your reality. And when you live in an incomplete reality, that is not an optimal way to live. You are fretful. You are fearful that your party of 12 is gonna go hungry. When a party of a few thousands just got fed by a miracle, what is wrong with you? You can't see what you should be able to see and you can't hear what you should be able to hear. Now, I say that to lead into the fact that last week we talked about life's most important question. And life's most important question is, does God exist? It's life's most important question because it's life's most consequential question. If God doesn't exist, we live in an accidental universe. If God doesn't exist, we live in a reality framed by something that offers no meaning, no purpose, no truth, no justice. It's just empty. If God doesn't exist, we simply exist. You exist, I I exist without an explanation. There's nothing greater outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, that we can look to and live for. It's It's just us. In other words, if God doesn't exist, we are left with a hopeless and meaningless existence. And if someone you know is prepared to say they don't believe in God, this is the reality they have to logically embrace. If you're here and you decide that, hey, I'm not gonna believe in God, I can't believe in God, then that's your right, that's your choice. But you also have to be ready for the logical conclusion that comes along with that. And in a world where God doesn't exist, everything is meaningless and everything is hopeless. We just exist. But on the other side of things, as Christians, we believe that God does exist. And we believe that God exists for good reason. And the good news is, if God exists, it changes the nature and the dynamic of our existence. If God exists, then you and I, we have purpose attached to us. If God exists, that means that you were planned and I was planned. If God exists, then everybody around you, including you, you have value, inherent value, not ascribed value, but inherent value because you are created in the image of God. If God exists, it means there's something greater outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, that we can look to and perhaps live for something that can offer us objective truth, something that can offer us the hope of things like justice and mercy and love and joy. If God exists, then maybe the unexplainable is explainable. And if God exists, maybe the impossible perhaps becomes possible. If God exists, the good news is we are never alone. If God exists, as Christians believe, our pain, your pain, my pain, is never unseen. Our voices are never unheard. Our lives are never unnoticed. And if we take it a step further, we are never unloved. So last week, if you weren't here, you need to go back and you need to get that message. And all the notes are online for last week and this week as well. So if you missed something, you can go back and you can get all the notes. You can get the video, you can get the audio. So I encourage you to go back because we talked about reasonable reasons why we believe that God exists. And those reasons bring us to the precipice of faith. And this is where we left off. This is the definition of faith in the New Testament. Now, faith is confidence, not certainty, but confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see because we walk by faith and not by what? We walk by faith and not by sight. So how can our faith be confident? Not because of some abstraction and not because of some force or not because of something that's spiritual. Our faith can be confident because of evidence. Our faith can be confident because of reasons. Our faith can be confident because of facts. And our faith is made stronger by the more facts that we gather, by the more truth that we gather. That's how faith can be confident. As we ask hard questions and do the hard work of finding answers or perhaps the best answers to those questions, we find evidence, we find facts, and we keep on following the facts. We keep on following the evidence until we are ready to take a reasonable step of faith based on reasons, good reasons. He goes on and says, by faith, we understand that the universe Everything that's up there and out there, it was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. What gives us confidence concerning our faith about the things that we can't see is rooted in the things that we can see. So the world that is around us that we can observe, that we can see, that we can interact with, that we can study and observe and make predictions about, or in other words, science, the world around us, the things that we can see, it gives us confidence concerning our faith for the things that we can't see. The evidence is in the things that we can see. The facts are in the things that we can see, and it fuels our faith for the things that we see can't see. And so he goes on, he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. So this is all about faith. It begins with believing that God exists. And we don't believe that God exists because of faith. We believe again, that God exists because of evidence. We evaluate the evidence, we follow the facts, and we go to the edge of the light. And because we found reasonable reasons in the light, We are willing to take one more step of faith into what seems dark. That's faith. And then he adds this, and I love this. This may be my favorite part. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Here's what Christians believe. Christians believe that God wants to be known. Christians believe that God is not up there playing cosmic hide and seek or where's Waldo. We don't believe that God's up there just trying to hide himself and saying, find me if you can, find me if you can, I'm over here, no, I'm over there. No, we believe in a God who wants to be known and he wanted to be known so he made himself known. And he makes himself known to those who are curious, not to those who are certain. He rewards those who diligently seek him. He is the reward for those who seek him. It is not good things. It's not blessings. It's not an open door of opportunity. It's not a raise. It's not a promotion. It's not a healing. The reward, the ultimate reward for seeking God is God himself. And so this is the logical part of our faith. And and one week kind of flows into the other, that flows into the other, that flows into the other. This is kind of my strategy for how I talk to my kids about faith. This is my strategy, how I talk to myself about faith. When somebody says, hey, pastor, would you like to go out for coffee? I have some questions about faith. These are the things that I go to. These are the things that I talk about. These are the conversations that I try to spark because I find these to be compelling. I find them to be reasonable. And in all of this, I find reasons to believe. What I believe are good reasons to believe. So this is all about giving a logical explanation for the reason that we believe what we believe. So today, we're going to take it a little bit further in this logical sequence of things. Last week, we talked about does God exist? Today, we're going to talk about miracles. Because when it comes to miracles, for some people, miracles, it's seemingly the idea of miracles, the the reality of miracles or the possibility of miracles or the prospect of miracles. For some people, it stretches their faith almost to the breaking point. It's just really, really difficult for them to believe in miracles. For some people, they use miracles as what they would call their obstacle to faith. Well, I could never believe that because of all the other things that are in the Bible. All those miracles, do you really believe all of those miracles in the Bible? Do you really believe things like the Red Sea, that the Red Sea, that it parted? Have you ever seen a body of water just part and people walk across on dry ground? Have you ever seen anything like that? No, I've never seen anything like that. But you believe that? I believe, I kind of believe that. I believe miracles are are a thing. And, And so for some people, you know, the Red Sea or a burning bush and someone talking out of a burning bush or the walls of Jericho, falling down because a group of people decided to march around it and blow some trumpets and make some noise or bread falling from bread falling from heaven i mean how does that work especially if you're on a low carb diet how does it work if there's bread falling from heaven do you just say no i'm not doing that right now i'm kind of carb cycling this is my down day so can you can it be more protein you know how does that work manna falling from heaven or water from a rock I mean, have you ever slapped a rock and got water out of it? Or what about a giant fish that swallows a man? It seems like I saw something about that in the news just recently. But a giant fish that swallowed a man and then spit him back up, you know, or water to wine, or blind people all of a sudden being able to see, or deaf people all of a sudden being able to hear, or dead people coming back to life. Miracles like that. For some people, it stretches their faith to the breaking point. For some people, they say, I just, I, I just can't believe that miracles are a thing, but there's a logical conclusion to all of this. If the greatest question that we can ask is, does God exist? If we answer in the affirmative, yes, I believe that there is a plausible reason to believe that God exists. Yes, I believe that God is. Yes, I believe that God exists. There is a logical conclusion to that. If God exists, miracles are possible. If God exists, miracles are possible. So somebody says, can you tell me why you believe in miracles? Well, I I believe in miracles because I believe that God exists. And if God exists, then miracles are possible. If I didn't believe that God exists, then I would probably not believe that miracles are possible because how would a miracle happen if it wasn't at the hand of some divine being, some supreme, all-powerful being? So yeah, if God exists, then miracles have to be possible. Last week, we started Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? You remember that? Let's all just... Say that verse out loud together on three. One, two, three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you say, if I say Genesis one and one is plausible, then everything that comes after Genesis one verse one is possible. So this is how we read the scripture. If Genesis one verse one is plausible, then everything that comes after it must be by necessity, by logical necessity, possible. If God created the heavens and the earth, that's miraculous. And if God exists outside of time and space and matter, if God is the architect and the author of all the laws of chemistry and physics, if God exists, then it is a reasonable conclusion to say miracles are possible. If God created the laws of nature, then if he so chooses to do so, he can supersede them. He can overpower them. Especially when you keep in mind we overpower natural laws all the time. Every time you get on an airplane and it takes off, it is overpowering the law of gravity. It is not doing away with the law of gravity. It is simply overpowering the law of gravity. When you hold something in your hand, it is not that gravity has gone away. You are now overpowering gravity itself. And if God, the author of natural laws, wants to overpower natural laws, if anybody can do it, It has to be God. If God exists, miracles are possible. Matter of fact, let's all just say that out loud together. If God exists, miracles are possible. One more time, if God exists, miracles are possible. Why do you believe that miracles exist? Why do you believe that miracles are possible? Because I believe that God exists. I believe that God is real, and if God is real and God exists, then miracles are possible. Now. Here, here's some definitions of miracle, because sometimes we talk about miracles as Christians in a way that's absolutely just frustrating. Uh, that's the British way of saying frustrating, uh, but it's just frustrating, it's frustrating. It, it, it's, just, it's just irritating. It's like I, I was in the Walmart parking lot and every, every single spot was full and it was about to rain, but I prayed in Jesus' name and somebody in that moment pulled out and I pulled in and it was a miracle. No, someone finished shopping, walked to their car, turned on the ignition or pushed the button and backed out and you pull, it happens all the time. And so we talk about miracles in a way that just seems like anything could be a miracle as long as it was something that we wanted to happen as long as it's something that was convenient in the moment. Here's a couple of definitions of miracles. Uh, Richard Purtle said, a miracle is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose that God has acted in history. So it's, it's interruptions to what is natural. Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler who wrote a lot about this, he says a miracle is a special act of God that interrupts the natural course of events. So God interrupts things to do something in particular for a specific reason. Uh, Dr. Anthony Flew said this, he said, natural laws describe naturally caused regularities, things that we would assume will just happen because they're parts of our world that operates under all the laws of chemistry and physics. But a miracle is a supernaturally caused singularity. Now, for a lot of people, when they think about the Bible, they think about a book that is just jam solid packed with miracles. I mean, it's just overflowing with miracles, but it's really not that at all. Uh, we hear the sermons oftentimes that often just contain the miraculous. But for everything that contains something miraculous, there, there's lots of other things in the scripture that doesn't contain something that we would call miraculous. Matter of fact, if you take all the numbers of miracles that happen in the scripture, if you take all the miracles in the Bible and then you divide it over the period of history that the scriptures cover, you find out that it comes out to about one miracle every 40 years. One miracle every 40 years. And when you think about one miracle every 40 years, that means in those days with the life expectancy, you would probably only see one miracle in your lifetime. And if you happen to see two, you are incredibly fortunate. But one miracle every 40 years. But sometimes we read the scriptures, we feel like miracles are happening every day, all the time. Now, there were times when there were clusters of miracles where miracles just seemingly happened in rapid fire and then miracles would just, you know, kind of just, you know, vanish away for a while and then all of a sudden there would be another one. But one out of every 40 years, now keep in mind this, if a miracle happened every day, sooner or later it stops being a miracle. It just becomes natural, it just becomes normal, it just becomes ordinary. Matter of fact, when you think about how the Bible, you know, kind of spaces out miracles over the course of its history at about once every 40 years, In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the New Testament opens up in a period of history where there hadn't been a miracle in 500 years. Nobody had seen a miracle, heard of a miracle in 500 years. But as the New Testament opens, there's something happening in a geographical area on this planet, first century Palestine. And there's something unique, there's something abnormal, there's something out of the the routine of everyday life that's happening in Palestine. All of a sudden, there is the son of this carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, who has stepped onto the scene and people are talking about it. People are talking about his sermons. They've never heard people, you know, a person preach like that before, but more than his sermons, they're talking about his works. They're talking about his miracles. They're talking about these things that he's doing that nobody can explain that nobody has ever really seen happen before. And all of this stuff is happening and it's happening in clusters. It seems like they're happening one right after the other, after the other. But that wasn't the case because there'd been 500 years before Jesus showed up when there were no miracles at all. But now all of a sudden it is as if God is doing something very unique and special in this time and space. At this moment in history, there's something that we need to pay attention to that is happening. And more than paying attention to what is happening in this moment in history, we are invited to pay attention to this man in this moment of history. This man, this Jesus of Nazareth. And so people began to wonder, who is this man? Who is this guy? I mean, he's doing some crazy things. Who's ever heard of it? And people like you were people like then. You know, some of them were thinking, I don't know. I've heard people talk about it and there's gotta be some explanation. There's a trick, there's a sleight of hand. There's gotta be some you know, explanation for what this guy is doing, but everybody's talking about it. And so people were going to see for themselves and they would go see for themselves and then they would see for themselves something miraculous. So much so that the gospel of John, this is what John says. John says, now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, which was one of the most populated times in Jerusalem, Many people, not a few people, not isolated little circle of people, not just the disciples, but many people saw the signs. And that's an important word, hold on to that word. They saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. Why did they believe in his name? Why did they take a step of faith? because of what their eyes saw, and because of what their ears heard. They looked at what was miraculous, and in that miraculous event, they saw something that we would call a sign. It was pointing towards something, and they followed it in the direction of Jesus, and they took reasonable steps in the direction of this carpenter. And then, after they had seen evidence, and after they had listened, and after they had observed, they made a reasonable decision based On the facts, based on the evidence, to believe in his name. So many people saw it, and it was well documented. Matter of fact, you you can study miracles as related to Christianity versus other religions. You're gonna find out that Christianity is the most supernatural religion of them all, with more documented miracles than anybody else claims to in history. And so all these people were they were seeing it, they were documenting it, so it wasn't confined to one person or a couple of people. I mean, people. All over the city, we're seeing this take place and it caused people to pause. Just like it would you, had you been there. I love America's Got Talent. I mean, it's one of my favorite shows. And and I'll just, I can get lost in YouTube videos, uh, especially of, of the the mentalist acts, you know, the mentalism and, you know, people supposedly reading other people's mind and saying what they've got on their card or, you know, almost like they predicted something before it happened and they've even got a video of it or, you know, just magicians doing their trade and doing their act. And sometimes I'm just like, I don't know. I don't, I've got to watch that again. I've got to try to figure it out. And had you been there in the first century, you wouldn't have been gullible. Had you been in there in the first century, you just wouldn't have been naive. And neither were those people. Those people were like you and like me. They had questions and curiosities. They knew this was not normal. So they drew close and they watched closer and they listened more intently. And it caused people to pause and ask questions and to think about who is this man? Jesus Because the idea is if God exists and miracles are possible, perhaps miracles are the means by which God reveals himself to us or that God says something really important to us about himself. Now, here's the thing. Not only did lots of people in Jerusalem see these miracles take place, but as people were talking about it, people were asking questions. And as people were asking questions, they got more curious. And even people that were scholarly this was just not uneducated common people. But even we find a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Many of you've heard about a guy by the name of Nicodemus. He was, he was a religious scholar. He was part of the religious establishment. He began to hear these things. He began to see these things. And in John chapter three, th- this is what John records. He says, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. How do we, how do we know that? How are we confident about that, Nicodemus? For no one could perform the Signs, there it is again. No one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus, a learned man, a red man, an educated man, he says, you know what? I'm paying attention to what you're doing and and these feel like signs from God. These, These are supernatural events that are signs and they are pointing me in a direction. And I'm not even sure if I like the direction that these signs are pointing me in, but I'm following the signs, I'm taking steps, I'm following the facts, I'm evaluating the evidence and and I'm at least ready to concede that there is something special about you. You are no ordinary man. And this was a man who had bias against believing. This was a man that was not in his best interest to believe that Jesus was who he was claiming to be. Now, later on, you know the story. Uh, Jesus, he eventually, you know, continues to do his miracles and eventually he's put to death. And a few days later, his disciples start talking about a resurrection. And we're gonna talk about that more in a couple of weeks. And really that's gonna be the zenith of, of this whole series. So don't miss it. But a few days after the resurrection, Peter, one of the original followers of Jesus, stands up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches a sermon to most all the people there in Jerusalem that were in earshot, I mean, thousands of people, because again, it was a populated time in the city. And this is what Peter stands up to say. Now, just follow this, because this is, this is at the heart of what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God or attested to by God, validated by God to you. Well, how did God do that? How did God confirm? How did God attest? How did God give a word of testimony about this man, Jesus? By miracles, by wonders, and by signs. And we're learning something about how this works. We're learning something about the true nature of the miraculous, the true nature of these signs and wonders. We read the gospels and we think that you know Jesus' miracles were just extensions of Jesus' compassion. Oh, look how sweet Jesus is, he healed somebody. Look at how sweet Jesus is, oh, he healed somebody else. But it was more than healing somebody. It was more than an act of compassion. It was no less than an act of compassion, but it was so much more than an act of compassion. These were not just isolated events expressing the goodness of Jesus or the compassion of Jesus. These were events that were serving as signs, not to just that generation, but to future generations. This was God, the God who exists, making himself known as Christians believe through one particular man in history, Jesus of Nazareth. And he was saying to the world through signs and wonders and miracles, pay attention to this guy. He says, God did this among you through him as you yourselves know because you all were witnesses of it. You saw it and you heard it, that God has proven this to you, that Jesus is no ordinary man. He has displayed great power. He has expressed divine acts of intervention. He has placed distinguishing marks upon this person, Jesus, to say, listen to him, don't miss him. Because whatever you do, this is the guy that your eyes needs to be peeled to. This is the one you need to be listening to. And so all of these events and all of these signs and all of these wonders pointed to Jesus. Again, let me show you again how this works. In the book of Hebrews, this is what the writer says. He says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? He he says, how can we just ignore what's so obvious? How can we ignore the evidence of what God has done in our generation, what God has done for the world? How can we just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to that? How can we ignore it? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, by Jesus himself, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So we've heard it from the people who were there, eyewitnesses who saw it with their eyes and heard it with their ears. But God also testified to it. How? By signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God, God has been shouting from heaven through signs, wonders, and miracles. Look at this man pay attention to what he says, pay attention to what he does. This was God testifying to the world about Jesus. This was God, as Christians believe, revealing himself to the world through Jesus. And if he is a God who wants to be known, he doesn't want us to miss him. So there's a cluster of miracles in the beginning of the New Testament that were an indication that God was up to something special so that the world would read about how they were documented by multiple witnesses That future generations would go back and consult the literature, would go back and consult the biographies, would go back and consult the writings to say the people were there. They saw it with their eyes. They heard it with their ears. Something unexplainable was going on in front of them. Something divine was going on in front of them and it was pointing them in the direction of one particular person. Now, John, who was one of the first followers of Jesus, who was there in the boat with Jesus the night they were arguing about the bread and who saw the miracles and who heard his sermons, John would document the life of Jesus, not only for his generation, but for future generations. And John wrote a biography, the authorized biography of Jesus himself, penned by John, a fisherman from Galilee. And John, when he wrote this biography of Jesus, he he does what all good authors does at some point in their writing, which is he communicates their intent. So he communicates his intent as he wrote the Gospel of John. And and this is what he says. He says, Jesus performed many other, what's the word, talk to me, just so I know you're listening, signs. He performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. We saw it and we heard it. We were there. We were on the front row. In the presence of his disciples, which are not even recorded in this book, he says, I didn't have all the time to tell you all that I wanted to tell you. But what I did write down, but these are written that purposeful statement that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Why would we believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Because of the signs that John would tell us about. The signs would serve as evidence. And as we follow the facts and evaluate the evidence, John says, perhaps it will lead you to conclude what we concluded, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah. And as you place your faith in that, you will receive eternal life. So for John, the signs that lead to belief were evidence, and it was a logical pursuit. You started with the event that served as a sign, and then it led to a reasonable conclusion of faith because they were all pointing to someone who was pointing to Jesus. And so then he concludes in the very last chapter, he said, this is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down, and we know that his testimony is true. John said, I'm not crazy. Neither are the people that saw it because John's writing it down in a day that they could have contested his testimony. They could have cross-examined his documentation. He says, so I have gone to extreme lengths to put down the facts as they are. I wrote it all down and I even told you my angle. I told you why I wrote it down. And for John, he will record seven miracles, seven sign miracles in his gospel. And he says, these seven miracles are signs that if you just watch them and you evaluate them and you take them at face value, they point you in a direction. They point you in the direction of belief. Believe that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God who came to live among us to reveal himself to us. So John writes seven miracles. I'll give them to you really quickly. But John gives seven miracles. And I would encourage you, just go read them. Read them for yourself. Read them as if you were reading them for the first time and imagine that you were there. The first one happens in John 2, where he turns water to wine. Jesus, the quintessential first bartender of the New Testament, he's there and he's at a wedding and they run out of wine. I mean, it's been a heavy day early on and everybody's like, we're out of wine. What are we gonna do? The party is not even close to being over. Where's the wine? And Mary, Mary was very concerned about this lack of wine. And she looks at Jesus and she goes, they're out of wine. And Jesus, I imagine, like, what do you want me to do about it? And Mary's like, they're out of wine, Jesus. <laughs> and so Jesus said, okay, give me some water. Give me some water pots. Fill up those water pots with water. And then Jesus does what Jesus does with everybody there at the wedding party. And they're all watching, and they're like, what is this guy, we don't want water, we want wine. Where's the wine, you know? And then all of a sudden they start pouring out what was the water, but it's now wine. And then everybody, you know, the enophiles they're drinking, they're like, oh my gosh. You've saved the best to last. <laughs> Nobody does that. You serve the best front. Because then after you've had a little bit, you don't care what you have after. Everything tastes good after the first couple. It's like, you've saved the best to last. And it says, this was the first miracle that Jesus did in Cana." and that people saw it as a sign and they're like, we've never seen this happen before, ever. Who could do this? And it pointed them in a direction and it kept them curious. Another miracle he tells us about is the nobleman's son in John chapter four. A father who lived in Capernaum, had a son who was desperately sick. But guess what the father heard about? He heard about what happened at that wedding party with the water to wine. He heard that Jesus was in Galilee. So he went to Galilee and he said, Jesus, I got a son. You remember you know, what it would be like to have you know, a sick son or daughter and how desperate you would get. He goes to Jesus in Galilee and says, I heard what you did up in Canaan and my son is sick. And if you, if you don't heal him, he's gonna die. So, so would, you just, would you just come and heal him? And Jesus said, I, I'm, not, I'm not gonna go with you, but he is made well. And it says that the guy believed Jesus and he left. Can you imagine the amount of belief it would take to walk away from the only person who you believe could help your son or daughter? But why did he believe? Not because he just hoped so, but because he had reasons to believe and he found reasonable reason to leave the only person that could help his son get well. And he walked away and then the next day, he met some of the people who were coming from his house in Capernaum and says, we got good news, your son, his fever's broke." And The father said, well, what time did the fever break? And he said, about uh, one o'clock yesterday afternoon. And he said, oh my goodness, that was the same time that Jesus spoke that he is well. John said, who could do that? Who could speak from a distance? Who could somehow speak outside of time and space and accomplish something in another place with just their words? And it was a sign. Then there was the paralyzed man in John chapter five, who had been sick for 38 years. And all of a sudden Jesus walks up to him. and said, do you want to be made well? And the guy said, what? Do you want to be made well? I thought that's, yes, I would like to be made well. Then pick up your mat and walk. And the guy stands up and it says that he was made well in that very moment. And he was healed. And John says, we were there, we saw it. So did all the other sick people that were there. Who could do that? It was a sign. And everybody saw it with their own eyes. There was the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter six, maybe 20,000 with women and children with a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. Jesus blessed it and multiplies. And there's 12 baskets of food left over at the very end. And everybody left saying, this is the best fish fish and chips of my life. This is incredible. How how did this happen? Who who could do this? Where did the food come from? And they're like, we were there, we ate it. We don't even know how it happened, but we watched it happen. We, we, We heard it with our very own ears. And John says, it's a sign. It's pointing you in a direction. This is evidence for you to consider. Then there's Jesus walking on water in John chapter six. There was a storm, the disciples are in the boat, they're fearful, he comes walking on the water. They're not even expecting Jesus to come walking on the water, they think he's a ghost. And then Jesus walks up on the water. Have you ever, uh, uh, (laughs) uh, have you ever tried to walk on water? I mean, have you ever just tried in a moment of just kind of, wild, crazy faith and say, God, I, in Jesus' name, I believe I could walk on this water. It doesn't work, it doesn't work. But Jesus comes walking on the water. Nobody's ever seen anybody walking on the water. And Jesus said, fear not, fear not, it is I, fear not. And they're watching a man walk on the water and they're like, maybe we should listen to it. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. Then there's a man born blind in John chapter nine. And Jesus walks up to him Spits on the ground, gets some damp mud, puts over his eyes, which is always one of the most peculiar scenes in all. I wonder if the blind man was curious about what was this mud wet with? (laughs) And all of a sudden he feels something damp on his face and Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the guy goes and washes. And guess what? He can see, he's never been able to see his entire life. And John said, everybody was there and saw it, even his enemies and they knew what happened, and it was a sign. And then the last one, it was kind of the zenith for for John. It was the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. The one that Jesus loved his friend, Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha, he's sick. They send word to Jesus, Jesus, come quick. If you're not, your friend Lazarus that you love is is gonna die. And it says when Jesus heard this in John chapter 11, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And so Jesus, he kind of announces something about what Lazarus is going through. And he says, there's really no explanation for it. He's sick, but the explanation is, this is all gonna be for God's glory. And, and Jesus, if he is representing God to us, he's telling us something about what's going on behind the curtain and the painful, dramatic moments of our life. He said, there's no emotionally satisfying answer to why. Lazarus is sick almost to the point of death. It's just, this event is for the glory of God. So Jesus doesn't go back to Bethany immediately. Matter of fact, he stays where he is for a couple of more days. Jesus was waiting for Lazarus to die. And when the moment that Lazarus died, he knew it and he told his disciples, he said, and for your sake, disciples of mine, I am glad I was not there. What? You were glad you weren't there to heal him? You were glad you weren't there when he died? Yes. So that you may believe because there's a sign that's gonna follow. So you're glad that he's dead so that we could go with you and somehow believe. That's what I'm saying. Because Jesus is teaching something about God that even when it seems like God is doing nothing, God is doing something. There's never a moment when God is not doing something. Meanwhile, in Bethany, without hospice, without oxygen, without medicine, Lazarus is dying. His sisters are whispering in his ear, Jesus is on his way. It's all gonna be okay. He's gonna heal you, but Jesus never comes and Lazarus dies. When Jesus shows up, it's not one day late, not two days late, not three days late, but it was four days late. His sisters run out and do what sisters would do. And they're like, had you been here, Jesus... If you just showed up when we asked you, you could have healed him, but he's dead. It's too late. Jesus looks at the sisters and says, your brother will rise again. Martha was like, I know, I know, I know. He'll be raised again in the final resurrection. And Jesus looked at the sister and said, I am the resurrection and life. And though a man die, If he believes in me, so shall he yet live. And Jesus said, take me to the tomb, roll back that stone. And everybody's thinking, this is insanity. And Jesus, as they roll away the stone, he asked this question, he says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And then he prays and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So this is not about Lazarus. And it's not even really about the disciples. It's about all of those people who didn't believe yet. And Jesus was about to give them a reason to believe. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And everybody there, including Jesus's enemies, watched Lazarus come back to life. And they all were left wondering what manner of man is this, that even death retreats from his command. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Some that day did. Some that day didn't. Some that day decided they were gonna put Jesus to death because there's a difference in, I can't believe and I won't believe. Some saw and believed that day because of the sign, the evidence that was right in front of them. If God exists, miracles are possible. And the purpose of those miracles are not to make our life easy, not to make our life convenient, but the purpose of those miracles are to point us in the direction of God himself who wants us to know him. And that's what we see in the New Testament. That's what we see when it comes to signs, wonders, and miracles. So maybe if you're not a believer, maybe if you're wrestling with belief, you could pray this prayer. Just start here, God, give me eyes to see what can be seen. And God, give me ears to hear what can be heard. And in seeking that much, I believe that he is a rewarder of those who are willing to seek. And perhaps if you'll just start there, God, give me eyes to see what can be seen and ears to hear what can be heard. Don't let me be numb to the miraculous all around me. When I look up at a universe that's 93 billion light years wide, Knowing that if I traveled at the speed of light itself, it would take me 93 billion years to cross. Knowing the complexity of my human body that if you took out my DNA, uncoiled it, put it together, it would stretch to Pluto and back. Don't let me miss the miraculous that's all around me, the visible world. Let me see what can be seen and hear what can be heard. And in doing so, perhaps you will find a reason, good reason, to keep believing or to start believing. Heavenly Father, thank you that as you exist, you want us to know you. And God, we believe that you performed signs and miracles and wonders in first century Palestine to draw attention to that place, at that moment in history to one person And as Jesus himself would declare that he was sent from God, that when we saw him, we had seen God, that he had come to show us the Father, that he had come to show us what God is really like. May we just always be reminded that these signs are pointing to you, to a God who knows us and loves us and who wants to be known by us. So God, give us eyes to see what can be seen and ears to hear what can be heard. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.